text for tonight is Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, or your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way, the righteous, unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It was the fall of 1990. A woman pushed herself back from the table, stood up and glared at me and said, you scare me. There's no way you should be allowed to come to Hebron Church. You're not even reformed. As I drove home that night, I thought about that last statement, and I thought, what in the world is she talking about? The next day, I called a friend of mine who knew I had that meeting the night before. He just graduated from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. When he answered, he said, how did it go last night? I said, it was nuts, but I eked it out on a party line vote. He said, really? That must have been tough. I said, no, it wasn't too tough, except there was a woman there accusing me not of being reformed. I'm as reformed as John Calvin. He laughed and said, it's all in a definition. I said, what do you mean? He said, they would never call you reformed. They'd call you reformational. They see you as stuck in the 16th century. To them, being reformed means you're always willing to allow your theology to shift with the times. Ironically, that's what started the Reformation. When Martin Luther looked around the church, he saw priests selling forgiveness for money. He also saw people believing what many people believe today, that the blessings of God are contingent on their own performance. And he knew what was needed was a reformation, reforming back to the Scriptures and to the solid theology of biblical theology. I have a friend who said the goal of life is to get from one hospital to another hospital without screwing it up too badly in between. And the truth is we all do. And no one knows that any better than the prophet Isaiah. And here on Christmas Eve, I'd like us to study what he says in chapter 55, because here he gives us a perfect description of the character of God and why there's Christmas. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the scene. Look at verse 1. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now think of what the law says. The law says, go and obey God's commandments. And when you surely break them, then you must go and offer an appropriate sacrifice. But here God says the opposite. There's not one mention of going. There's all, all he has to say is come, come, come to the waters. Come and buy and eat without money. 120 years ago, during the Spanish-American War, Teddy Roosevelt went to Clara Barton, the head of the American Red Cross. He was there for one reason. He wanted to buy supplies for his troops. It had been bloody battles. He had wounded troops, and he needed those medical supplies. And so he comes to Clara and asks to buy the supplies, and she says no. And Roosevelt can't believe it. He said, how do you expect me to care for my troops who are dying without the supplies that you have? She smiled and said, just ask for them, Colonel. Roosevelt stared at her for the longest time, and then he said, okay, I'm asking. And with that, she gave him everything she had. That's what the Lord is saying here. And look who he's talking to. He's talking to his own people who have been in Babylonian captivity for 50 years. And after 50 years, he, he raises up a pagan king by the name of Cyrus, king of the Persians, and Persia and Cyrus won a, win a great battle over Babylon. The first thing Cyrus does is he turns to the Jewish leaders and says, you can return home. You can go back and build the city of Jerusalem. You can go back and build your temple. You can go back and worship your God the way you desire to worship. Listen to what Josephus, the Jewish historian, says. But many chose to stay in Babylon, not willing to part with their possessions. Think of it. God says, come, all who are thirsty, come buy without money all that you need, and most decline the offer. And that's why Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, more than any other prophet, he knows the extent of our attachments, and he knows the extent of our need. Second, notice not only the scene, notice the surprise. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Now imagine Satan's reaction to this. In the Garden of Eden, he said to himself, if I can just make Adam and Eve choose their own will over the will of God, God will surely destroy them. And the reason he thinks that is because that's exactly what's happened to him. He's chosen his will over the will of God. He's exalted himself. And when he does, the Lord casts him out of heaven and pronounces his complete defeat. But now here... God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my steadfast love for David. Think of what God's saying. What God's saying is, I'm going to will my own will. I'm going to welcome sinners into heaven. And I will love them, and I will make them my sons and daughters. Can you imagine Satan's shock at that? 
How is that possible? How is it possible for a holy God to receive people like us into his presence? That leads us to the third point. Notice the secret. Look at verse 4. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Now, who's he talking about? Some say he's talking about David because he refers to him, but David's dead. Besides, David had a spotty record. David was not completely virtuous. He calls himself a sinner in the womb of his mother. How could a holy God do anything but curse David and his descendants? Somebody tells the story of a skeptic who came to a Christian and said, you know, I know the Bible can't possibly be true. The Christian said, well, how do you know that? He said, because of that place in the Bible where God says, Esau, I hated. Imagine a God, a holy God, a loving God saying something like that. The Christian nods and says, yeah, you've got a point. That is a difficult verse, but not the part you're quoting. Esau was a sinner. The law is clear. The wages of sin is death. Who could respect a holy God who wouldn't hate him in that condition? Now, the problem with the verse is not Esau. It's Jacob. Before God refers to Esau, he says, Jacob I loved. Jacob I loved? Jacob is a crook. He's a liar. He tricked his own father and he hated his own brother, and yet God says, I love Jacob. That's the real problem. How can a holy God love wicked men and women like us? How can he love Jacob? The answer is right here in the text. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. The word witness means martyr. It means one who's willing to lay down his life for the sake of others. Who's the martyr here? Who's the witness? It's not David. It's the one who will come from the line of David, who lays his life down for you and for me and for Jacob. Fourth, notice the solution. Look at verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Until God says that, Satan has no reference point to gauge the heart of God. He had seen his long-suffering nature, but now he begins to see something else. He sees the very thing that causes the wrath of God to fall on Satan coming upon God himself. Look what he says. I will have compassion on them. Do you know what that means? That means that God's response to our sin is not to pull away. It's to draw near. It means our brokenness breaks his heart. It means our sin makes us more and more attractive to a God who cares for us. One of Luther's favorite expressions is, oh, blessed sin. And when you read that in Latin or in German or in English, you're stunned because you say, how in the world could he say that sin is blessed? I mean, this is a man who had a long, inconsolable vexing of sin. 
He wore out confessors. He'd hire them to listen to his, his confessions. And finally, one after another said, I can't take you anymore. Hire somebody else to listen. No matter what Luther did to live an upright life, he knew no matter how much he tried, he knew how, no matter how much he confessed, there was nothing that could make him acceptable in front of a holy God because he knew what holiness meant. And that sin in his life was thousand-pound weight driving him deeper and deeper into despair until the day he's on the ladder and steps and he recalls the Scriptures. And the Scriptures say very plainly, the just shall live by faith. And suddenly he recognizes God is holy, but more than that, he has a loving heart and he's full of compassion. He delivers us from our sin. And what Luther comes to recognize is without sin, there is no grace. Maybe it's because of our own religious preconceptions that we cling to the thought that we have to earn it. Maybe Satan has blinded our eyes, and that's why we miss it. Maybe it's because we're unwilling to admit how screwed up we are that we don't get it. Whatever the reason, the truth of the gospel is clear. Jesus came not despite God's love, but because of it. God doesn't love you in spite of your sin. He loves you in the midst of it. And in the midst of your sin, not just once, but every day of your life, He draws near. He came near when you hated Him. He came near when you wanted nothing to do with Him. He came near and he turned to you in love and Satan can't believe it. And then fifth and finally, notice the significance. Look at verses eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you know what that means in light of Christmas? It means that before God created the world, He knew you. Before He said, let there be light, He knew you by name. He not only knew your name, He knew all about you, He knew all of your secrets, He knew all of your sin, He knew all of the skeletons in your closet. He knew that you would will your own will. He knew that you would lay up treasures for yourself on earth rather than heaven. He knew you would worship the creature rather than the creator. He knew the depth of the hell that your sin deserved. So what's he do? He determines to come and take upon himself all the cost that you've incurred. Somebody has said the only thing that can really change a life is love. And there's only one kind of love that can change a life, and that's sacrificial love. Just after World War II, Ernest Gordon, who became the chaplain at Princeton's University, he wrote this, as the conditions worsened, as starvation and exhaustion and disease took their ever-growing toll, the atmosphere in which we lived became increasingly poisoned and selfish and hate and fear abounded. We were slipping rapidly into, into a, a state of degradation. 
We live by the rule of the jungle, survival of the fittest. It was the case, what was the case was I'm going to look out for myself and to hell with you. The weak were trampled underfoot, the sick were ignored. The dead were forgotten. When a man lay dying, we'd always divert our eyes. There'd be no word of mercy. We'd hear his cry for help, and we'd pretend we didn't hear it. We'd long since resigned ourselves to being derelicts. We were forsaken men, and now even God had forsaken us. Hate was the only thing that motivated some of us. We hated the Japanese. We hated our imprisonment. If one Japanese soldier came within the length of our arms, if we had the strength, we would have torn that person limb from limb. And then one day a shovel changed everything. At the end of the day, the tools were collected of the work party. And on one occasion, the Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing. He demanded who took it. When no one stepped forward, he began to rant and rave. He worked himself into a paranoid rage, ordering whoever did it to step forward, return the shovel at once, or else everyone would die and nobody moved. Finally, he began to shout, all die, all die, he shrieked, and he cocked his, his rifle and aimed it at us. And all at once, one man stepped forward, and the guard clubbed him to death with the butt of his rifle while he stood silently at attention. When he was on the ground, bloodied, battered, and dead, we were given the order to bury him, and so we did. And when we returned to the camp, another count of the tools was taken, and it was discovered that no shovel was missing. And suddenly we all realized that that man had sacrificed himself for every one of us. And from that moment, nothing was the same. Why? Because in the face of sacrificial love, everyone of us knew that he took what we deserved. Look what the Lord says. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Aren't you glad? Not only did he breathe life into dust, but he made that dust into his own image. And he gave us the freedom to mar that image beyond all recognition. And that marring deserves nothing but judgment and hell. But instead of giving us that, he stepped forward. He saves us by taking on himself the hell we deserve. You see, the Reformation is all about the character of God. The glory of God's character is in the cost. It cost him his son. That's why there's a Christmas. Think about that. Amen.